All right. Well, we're back in the book of Jonah this morning. If you have a Bible, I'll invite you to open there. If you've got it on a device, you can head to your search function and type in Jonah. It's a little bit trickier to find. It's a short book in the later bit of the Old Testament. And we jumped into the series last week, and I, we only got through about three verses. And so you may have heard me say, okay, this is, this is going to take us till summer. And you're like, three verses, but Sean, this is going to take forever if you're like that. So today we're actually going to wrap up the whole first chapter. Now, I don't know if you remember, and frankly, I don't know if it's still the case, but there was a, a trend in filmmaking not too long ago where, where the, the movie was made and you kind of followed a few different sets of characters and you weren't totally sure how their lives impacted one another until the very end. Anyone remember a couple movies like that? There's a few, right? The one that came to mind first for me was, uh, was seven, I think it was called Seven Pounds with, with Will Smith, where he kind of tracked the stories of all these people because I won't give away the movie, but at the end, it all came together. You could tell you're watching one story. Well, as we look at the rest of this chapter, I kind of want us to to look at it in that light. There's sort of three characters or groups of characters that act in chapter one and kind of envision as we read, following each set with one camera. It's the same story, three perspectives as we follow. So I'm going to read the text. And then we'll look at the, the chapter from the vantage points of the sailors, this is a bit of a heads up, of, of Jonah, and then of God himself. Okay, And even as I read, uh, see if you can put yourself kind of into the shoes of these groups. This is Jonah chapter 1. I'm picking it up at verse 4. So Jonah has run away, gone the opposite direction he was supposed to go, and boarded a ship going West, when he's supposed to be traveling east. Verse 4. But the Lord threw a great wind onto the sea, and such a great storm arose on the sea that the ship threatened to break apart. The sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his God. They threw the ship's cargo into the sea to lighten the load. Meanwhile, Jonah had gone down to the lowest part of the vessel and had stretched out and fallen into a deep sleep. The captain approached him and said, What are you doing? Sound asleep. Get up. Arise. Call to your God. Maybe this God will consider us, and we won't perish. Come on, the other sailors said to each other. Let's cast lots. Then we'll know who's to blame for this trouble we're in. And so they cast lots, and the lot singled out Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us who is to blame for this trouble we're in. What is your business, and where are you from? What's your country, and what people are you from? Jonah answered them, I'm a Hebrew. I worship the Lord, the God of the heavens, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were seized by great fear and said to him, What have you done? The men knew he was fleeing from the Lord's presence because he had told them. And so they said to him, What should we do to you so that the sea will calm down for us? For the sea was getting worse and worse. Jonah answered them, Pick me up. And throw me into the sea, so that it will calm down for you, for I know that I am to blame for this great storm that is against you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but because they couldn't, but they couldn't because the sea was raging against them more and more. And so they called out to the Lord, Please, Lord, don't let us perish because of this man's life, and don't charge us with innocent blood, for you, Lord, have done just as you pleased. Then they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea. And the sea stopped its raging. The men were seized by great fear of the Lord 
and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Now, I guess even as we, as we read that, you can get a sense of the, the three different perspectives in this story. So let's look at them one by one. Now, first, the perspective of the sailors. I don't know about you, but I haven't been on too many, like, big boats in, in my day. But from what I do understand and, and what I've seen as I've, you know, walked around a harbor a time or two, is that before any boat leaves the harbor, there's a lot of work that has to be done. There's a pre-sailing checklist, if you will. So the systems are checked, the route is confirmed, you know, attendance is taken, cargo is loaded, all these things get organized before that boat uh, leaves the safety of the harbor. And throughout that process, there's someone in charge making sure everything is all good to go, all the right questions are asked, all the appropriate commands are given and concerns are taken care of. And once that's sorted, the voyage begins. Now, even though the book of Jonah takes place more than 2,500 years ago, the crew on this ship sailing out of this port in Joppa would have gone through a very similar process. The sailors knew where they were headed. They knew the route. They knew how to, to load up the cargo. They knew what to deal with the sails and the ropes and the anchors and all the things. And, and everyone would have known kind of their place in the structure of the crew. And, and they would have been working together to make sure that departure was as smooth as possible. Now, this group of sailors was, was likely, based on from what we know where they were sailing from and to, they were likely from Phoenicia. And these Phoenicians were a, a group of Canaanites coming from an area that now we would call kind of northern Lebanon. So if you want to picture the world a little bit, if you can do that, northern Lebanon. And this group was known for many things, and kind of near the top of the list was their ability to sail. These were seafaring people. This, for them, would have just been another day at the office. Load up the ship, away we go, let's just get the work done. Now, we don't know from the text when things started to turn for this crew. I think if they were still in the port and the storm cropped up, they never would have left, right? They were smart enough to know that. But at some point, this turned into no ordinary journey. I don't know how much uh, sailing or even flying you have done as a passenger, but if you're in an airplane, so just help this helps my mind a little more because I've been on more planes than boats. What's the first thing you do when you're in the air and that plane gives a big bump? Other than grab the, grab the things, right? You look to the crew, right? And if they're still pushing the drink cart down the aisle, no matter how much you're bouncing around, if they're still walking down the aisle, things are maybe not okay, but they think it's okay, so I will try to believe it's okay. But if the pilot comes on and says, flight crew, take your seats, that's when you cinch that thing a little bit tighter, grab on and look through the front for the bag just in case, right? But even still, if they kind of casually walk back down the aisle, file the things and sit down and they, they look okay, okay. But when you start to notice that look in the crew's eyes, right, that something's not right, when they start to reach for the bags, that's, that's when you, you wonder. And that's what's happening here on the sea. These sailors were professionals. They knew the sea. This was not their first bump. This was not their first wave that they hit. They had no doubt sailed this route many times, sailed through storms like this, struck by big storms time and time again. Uh, but there was something about this storm that, that made them uncomfortable. It, it, was, it was maybe more fierce 
than it should have been, than they expected. Uh, there's a good chance it was, it was an unusual time of year. We know this from other places in Scripture, that weather uh, in this part of the world is different than here, where the weatherman can tell you one thing and it just never shows up, or it can say sunny and then the thunder rolls over it, right? You can't, you can't really predict here, but there, it's a rainy season, there's a dry season, there's a good season to sail, and there's a bad season to sail. There's some evidence of this in the book of Acts 2, where Paul says, hey, if we leave, there's going to be problems on the sea. We, we all know this, right? We're, we're, we know this? And so there was a time of year when storms were expected and the seas would kind of close, if you will. And this seems to be one, not one of those times. They weren't expecting a storm, let alone a storm this big. And verse 5 tells us that it wasn't just one or two rookie sailors that were nervous. That they were all upset. They were all fearing for their lives, it says, they all cried out to their gods, the text says. When we read that, we're reminded that, that, that these sailors weren't following Israel's God. They were following their own gods. And, and, and knowing the Canaanite background and, and the Phoenicians, they, they would have had a, a, a worldview of polytheism, meaning serving many gods or worshiping many gods. And so they would have had particular gods for particular places and particular purposes. And so when something's going wrong, they have to kind of file through the, the Rolodex of their brain. That's an old word, but the Rolodex of their brain thinking, okay, uh, we're in this place, so I think this God helps here, and it's this kind of weather, so we need to appeal to this God here, and, and we're on a boat. So the, the God of boats, you've got to find, find that one too. And they cried out to the right, or they tried to cry out to the right combination of gods for their particular time and circumstance, trying to get the attention of the right gods to help them. At the same time, not only were they scared and crying out to their gods for mercy, but they were throwing anything they could overboard, trying to get that, that boat to sit higher in the waves. They're crying out, they're fearing, they're, they're tossing cargo, and then verse 7, it says they, they cast lots to try to find out who or what was behind this storm. When they left port, everything apparently was normal and fine, but now they're, they're in chaos trying to do whatever they can to understand the situation. Uh, one writer uh, helpfully describes casting lots like this. It's not something we do anymore. Well, in the church, we don't do anymore anyways. He says this. Now, these lots were originally like little stones. They might have been created in the shape of dice, but they were usually used in pairs. They would have had a, a dark side and a light side. And what they would do is they'd take these stones, they kind of shake them up, and they'd throw them like you'd throw a dice. And if both stones came up dark then that would say that, no, this is a negative situation, or kind of uh, the question you've asked of the dice is a negative answer. If they came up light, then it was positive. And if it was mixed, then it was kind of the gods saying, hang on, just, just sit tight for a minute. Now, the interesting thing is when we read our Bibles, we do find God's people casting lots a few times. An example, uh, there's an example in Joshua 18, 1 Chronicles 24, Leviticus 16, and there's actually one time in the book of Acts, too, when they want to replace Judas. But importantly, after Pentecost, which, what happened at Pentecost, do you remember? The gift of the Holy Spirit, we don't read anything of lots anymore in the Bible. Okay, so a little bit of a side here. We should not be consulting dice for wisdom. We should not be consulting cards. We should not be consulting mediums, all of these things. There's only two places where, where information comes to us from. It's either from God or from the evil one. 
Okay? So as I was reading and studying about lots, I was like, man, this sounds like what you'd ask a Ouija board. Right? We don't do that. We don't toy with that. Because if you're not inviting the Lord into your life, you're opening yourself to have the evil one in your life, and that's not a good thing. So after Pentecost, we don't read anything more about lots in the Bible. And maybe uh, this writer says the most helpful summary statement that we can find about lots in the Old Testament is in Proverbs 16.33. And Solomon says, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. In other words, we can throw the dice and we can use that for the basis of a decision, but God, who is sovereign over all, controls all the things, even the dice. And now in our New Testament understanding, we, we don't need the dice because we can boldly approach the throne of God and ask him ourselves. Back to Jonas. They cast the lots and it directed them to one particular individual, and we'll get to him in a second. And the sailors started their investigation. Verse 8, they said, who, Who's to blame for this trouble? Who are you? Where are you from? What's your business? What's your country? What's your people? See, they're trying to get the answers to these questions because they're like, okay, if he's from this region, then again, we have to call on this God. If he works in this industry, then we have to call on this God. They're still trying to fit what's going on into their polytheistic understanding of the world. And they basically ask him, what did you do? And what should we do? Because we're all out of ideas. In verse 11. Jonah answers them, and again, we'll dig into his answer soon. He says, throw me overboard. Now, if you were feared, fearing for your life, panicked, already throwing your cargo overboard, and someone said, the answer is to throw me overboard too, what would you do? Tough, tough question, right? But Maybe you just think, well, it's him or us, Gonzo. But what do they do? Look at verse 13. They do not like Jonah's answer. Right? They rode harder. Said, so, no, no, we're not. We know if you go over, you're done. You will not survive the waters. We will not sacrifice you for our sake. So anything but that. Again, the actions of the sailors, they continued to put their own lives at risk because they were unwilling at that moment to send Jonah to a watery grave. One of the things we can pull out several times, actually, from the book of Jonah, is that Jonah's supposed to be the hero, right? Jonah's supposed to be God's prophet. Jo Jonah's supposed to be God's example to the world. And when God said, Jonah, go to these people to save them from destruction, he said, no. And now here, Jonah says to them, throw me in the water to save yourselves. And they said, no. Let's not think that Christians or followers of God have a monopoly on godly behavior or godly actions. So in verse 8, the sailors conducted their investigation. In verse 13, they rowed even harder with more determination, and seeing that it wasn't working, they then cried out to Jonah's God, begging for forgiveness for what they were about to do. And they threw him over the edge. And I'm sure that what happened next, nobody expected. But look at verse 15. The sea stopped its raging, which caused them to realize that this God that this man Jonah just talked about, just pointed them to, he was the real deal. And we read in the New Living Translation that they were awestruck by the Lord's great power, offered him sacrifice, and vowed to serve him. One thing that I, I don't think has changed over the centuries is that sailors tell 
ocean stories, fish stories, all the tall tales that come from their, their time on the sea, right? Imagine the story these guys had when they got back to land and to their families. Well, let's switch over to camera two, the one that's focused on our hero, if you will, Jonah, God's prophet. While all the chaos is going on above the deck, the, 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 the people are panicking, they're scared. Uh, the boat's got to be moving a ton if they're scared. They're throwing things into the, into the, the ocean, the cargo into the ocean, and where's Jonah? The camera finds him below deck in verse 5, falling into a deep sleep. How could he possibly find himself here? We could assume that maybe he's, he's exhausted from his trip, running from, from where he was, probably around Jerusalem, to Joppa to try to catch the boat. Uh, he, he knows that he's running from God, so probably when he boarded the ship, he didn't want to stick around and chit-chat, hey, where are you going? I, well, I'm just running away from my God this way. And probably they wouldn't have kept him on the boat if they heard that, right? So instead he kind of sneaks and sulks down to the sleeping quarters where he can just be alone. He falls into a deep sleep, presumably both physically and spiritually worn out from his running. One writer says, disobedience is draining. Haven't you noticed that? It, it might be exhilarating for the moment. It might give you a momentary buzz, but is, but is enervating, not energizing. And probably we will never fall into a, most, a more morose and disconsolate sleep than the sleep that follows facing steadfastly the clarity of a word from God turning our backs on it, and then wanting to run and hide from everyone and anyone. So that even when up on deck gets total chaos, down in our quarters, in our private realm, we're sleeping not the sleep of the just, but we're sleeping the sleep of the sinful. So the captain comes down looking for them. They kind of, as we talked about, they've, they've tried everything, and maybe someone says, hey, is there anybody else on the boat? Anyone else that we can ask that, that maybe we can figure out what's going on here? And they realize there was one more guy. He was kind of stealth mode, went to the basement. The captain comes down, and he wakes up Jonah and says, Jonah, how can you sleep through this? And of course, when you're waking up, your first question would be, sleep through what? And the captain shouts at him, get up or arise. Remember, that's exactly what God said to him in verse 2, right? Get up, Jonah. Call to your God. Imagine Jonah's groggy response as he wakes up, and it's told Jonah, we, we need help from your God. He's like, no, not him, please. I'm kind of running. We're, we're kind of not on speaking terms right now. I'm kind of friends off with him. I'm trying to run a little bit. Then when he came up to deck and saw that they were casting lots, he knew he was busted. He would have knew, known he was busted. As good filmmakers of the scene, we would have had one camera kind of zoom in on the hand, shaking the dice, and the other camera on the face of Jonah, right, and zoomed in on his eyes. You could tell from his eyes that he knows he's in trouble. You could probably see that one bead of sweat run down his forehead, as all good filmmakers would have found. And he knows he's going to be found out, that he would be seen as the problem. And so he's honest with them when they ask the questions. What should we do? He says, just throw me over the edge. This is all, this is all my fault. And sailors tried to resist, but eventually they, they took hold of Jonah. Maybe a couple grabbed his feet, a couple grabbed his arms. Reluctantly, probably said, are you sure about this? Are, you sure, are we sure about what are we What are we doing here? Took him to the edge of the ship and threw him over. I'm sure that they were pained, saddened, and worried, and scarred. Thinking, what are we doing to this man, the prophet of God? The one he just told us, his God created the heavens and the seas, and now, now we're, 
we're killing this God's prophet? This, this, this doesn't seem like a good idea. This man who was given a, a, a preaching mission with clear direction, a clear path, he ran the other way, and now we're going to kill him? What do you think is going through Jonah's mind as he goes over the edge, splashes into the water? Did he have that kind of life flash before his eyes moment? Did he wonder how his life ended up being in the hands of Phoenician sailors? Did he have regrets? Did he repent as he fell? Well, there's one more actor in the story, if you will, and that's God. And throughout the chapter, we see his hands all over these events. First, look at verse 4. We read that the Lord threw or hurled or sent a great wind to the sea. The, the, the word in verse 4 is the same word used for throwing the cargo, the same word for throwing Jonah over the side. And right from the start, we see God's hand is even in this storm. And it reminds us of a lot of language that fills the book of Psalms. In, in Psalm 119, we read, Your laws endure to this day, for all things serve you. God has a divine control over the oceans. He has divine control over the universe. And this is a constant theme of Israel's praise, again, in the Psalms. So when you read the Psalms, and I hope you do, read them regularly. Pick, pick one a day, pick five a day, just go through them. Again and again, you'll, you'll find words praising God for the fact that He is in control. Even as we sung, even when we can't see it. And that He is sovereign over all the universe. Consider Psalm 33, verse 7. We read that he, that, that God, gathers the water of the sea into jars. And he puts the deep into storehouses. That's quite the picture, isn't it? God putting oceans into jars and putting them on a shelf. Alistair Begg says, He gathers up the oceans and puts them in the jars in the same way that you and I might put together a gallon of pink lemonade and know ourselves sovereign over that affair. To God Almighty, the oceans of the world are as much under his control as if he was able to simply gather them up and put them into jars. How different is this view of God than those of the pagan sailors? Those sailors viewed the sea as some kind of uncontrollable primordial force and they were simply at its mercy, trying to beg from whatever God they could to try to just get them through. And when they cried out, they were simply hoping to just manifest themselves a way out of the storm, not just kind of get through the raging sea, as opposed to call out to a God who actually controlled the sea. A little bit later in the psalm, Psalm 107, 25, it says, He spoke, God spoke, and raised a stormy wind that stirred up the waves of the sea. See, God, as creator, exercises his rightful authority over these things. And he even uses them to direct, <laughs> to discipline his people. That's what's so significant later. Maybe you're, you're thinking of somebody asleep in a boat in a big storm, and you think, wait a minute, I've read about that later in the Bible. And in the New Testament, there's a scene where we find Jesus asleep in a boat with his disciples, during a storm on the Sea of Galilee. Remember that one? There's some pretty staunch similarities to Jonah here. Similarly, the disciples are experienced fishermen. They would, they would know the water. They would understand the storm. They would have sailed through storms before. It's not like 
you know, like me on a paddleboard, and the wind kicks up, and these six-inch waves start to hit the board, and I'm like, God save me! Well, these, these guys knew it, right? They, they were fine. But instead, they're freaking out in the storm, and they wake up Jesus, and what do they say to him? Don't you care about us? Don't you care we're dying? And maybe the good Jewish boys knew this story of Jonah. And so when Jesus gets up, stands up, looks at the storm, and basically says, hey, cool it. And it stops. Remember what the disciples said? Who is this guy? Who is this man that even the wind and waves obey him? See, and these, these are good Jewish fishermen in the New Testament. They knew that God is the one that could gather up the oceans of jars and that had the deep in the storehouses. And Jesus stood up and says, here I am. This is the Jesus we talk about here at Trinity. This is the Jesus that we commit our lives to or we're asking you to commit your lives to. This is the Jesus whose authority we submit to. If he can tell the storm to be quiet, then he can tell me whatever he wants about my life. And I should listen. This is the Jesus who came and died on the cross for our sake. The point here is simply this. What happened to Jonah was not a coincidence. The Lord used even the sea as an instrument to discipline his reluctant prophet. So the Lord, who in verse 4 sent a great wind, now in verse 17 at the end of our chapter, sent a great fish to swallow Jonah. He didn't leave his servant. This might not, <laughs> sometimes we have to wrap our minds around in the mercy of God and the grace of God, Jonah got eaten by a fish. He didn't leave his, certain, his servant to certain death, but provided a rescue. It wasn't clean. It wasn't pretty. It wasn't like Pinocchio, where if you remember the old Pinocchio movie, they're in the belly of the whale and they've got the campfire and whatever else. No, this would have been like tight and ugh. But he rescued him. As we continue forward in the book, we'll see again and again how the Lord provides. There's a, several examples in chapter 4. The Lord provides a vine and a worm and an east wind. And here he provided that great fish to swallow Jonah for three days and three nights. And I know, we talked about miracles last week, but I know that some of us, even right now, are thinking, that's crazy. It's still crazy. I know, Sean, you talked about miracles last week, but swallowed three days, three nights, and a fish and survived. That's crazy. I cannot, I, I can't. It's impossible. Let me invite you in your off time this week to Google modern-day Jonah stories. Because in the last couple of years, there have been uh, at least three that I found where someone has actually been swallowed by a whale, hasn't been for three days and three nights, but nevertheless, and survived. But even as we, as we close, that's neither, it is a little here nor there. But even as we close, I want to leave you with this extended story. Again, uh, Alistair Begg uh, put this in a, in a message some time ago, about 10 years ago. I said this. He says, I don't think there's any great service to try to find a contemporary illustration to, to, to prove to you that Jonah could have survived in the whale or not. To justify the text of Scripture, he says, the text of Scripture stands alone and we will submit to it regardless. He says, but there is an interesting article in the Associated Press. Again, this is about 10 years ago. You may have heard of it. I think I remembered hearing about it. When uh, Air Flight France 71 from Papiti, Papietti, I forget how to say that, from French Polynesia, from Tahiti, arrived in Los Angeles at 7.48 p.m. And when it got to the gate, a maintenance worker spotted a, blanker, a blanket 
hanging from a wheel well and notified authorities when he found a man. In that wheel well, they found a six-foot, 180-pound man virtually frozen who survived the temperatures at 38,000 feet, flying at 600 miles an hour for eight hours. When they got him down out of there, his clothes were threadbare. He was covered in all kinds of grease, and his core body temperature was 79 degrees. When they got him to the, uh, that's when they got him to the UCLA Medical Center. One of the doctors said, we don't know of any other person whose body temperature dropped this low who has survived. Usually, anything below 85 degrees is fatal. So Beg says, it's interesting. It's just interesting. You know, if, if we all sat down and said, hey, do you think it's possible for a six-foot, 180-pound man to fly for eight hours in the wheel well of a 747 at 38,000 feet going 600 miles an hour with sub-zero temperatures, 50 degrees below, not counting wind chill factor, finally arrive in L.A. and somehow get off, find his way to the hospital, get checked out, and then go to Denny's before dinner that night. Would that be possible? We would all say, no, that's absurd. But here it is. And that doesn't factor in the resurrection of Jesus actually playing a part in this either, right? I love how he concludes. He says, let's face it, most of us don't even understand how our stereo works. Why would we be fighting with God over how he works miracles? Let me pray. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this text. Thank you for these verses. Thank you that, that the book of Jonah will continue to make us squirm a little bit because we'll read that the person who is supposed to be your representative is the one who's running from you. And we see almost a, uh, not a, not a holiness, but we see your character coming through in people who don't follow you. I pray that that would help us squirm a bit, maybe. Thank you for, again, the things we continue to learn in this text, that, that nobody is beyond your reach, that no place is out of your control, that your heart is not just for a certain select group of people, but your heart is for all people, that repentance is always your goal, of bringing back into community is always your will. So we thank you for the message of this prophet and that you didn't just let him die a watery grave, but you intervened. And thank you that centuries later, Jesus, you came. You came into a world that was walking in darkness, that, that was looking, some were looking for you, others weren't. We're trying to work their hardest just to try to understand life. And, and you came and you showed us how to rightly relate to God and to others and to creation itself. Jesus, you showed us how to, to answer the call when God calls. You showed us how to obey. And Jesus, you went to the cross for us. And much like Jonah spent three days and a night in the grave, you spent three days in the grave as well. And without uh, spoiling Jonah, just like he was spit up out of the fish, you came up out of the grave. Conquering our greatest enemies in Satan's sin and death. Proving to us just how much you loved us and continue to love us. 
And by your work on the cross, we can now be called sons and daughters of the creator of the universe, the one who made the skies and the seas, the one who spoke a word and calmed the seas. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.